What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 47 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Woiwurrung and Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are ongoing processes. Margaret McCown is the Clinical Professor Emerita of Education at the University of Pittsburgh. Prior to retirement, Margaret was a Senior Scientist at the University's Learning, Research and Development Centre, and her work addresses practical and current issues that classroom teachers face at the chalk face. She has undertaken research in such areas as learning, instruction, teacher professional development, vocabulary and reading comprehension, the topic of today's podcast. Margaret is a co-author of several books, including Bringing Words to Life, Creating Robust Vocabulary, and Vocabulary Assessment to Support Instruction. She is also a fellow of the American Education Research Association and was inducted into the Reading Hall of Fame, which sounds like a pretty cool place to be. In this discussion, Margaret and I speak about her forthcoming book, co-authored with Isabel Beck, entitled Questioning the Author. Questioning the author offers a really fresh take on reading comprehension that I hadn't thought of before, and I was immensely impressed with the clarity and applicability of the text as well. In this interview, we start out with an overview of the QTA approach, but things really get juicy towards the middle when I share a lesson plan that I've put together based upon the strategies outlined in the book, and Margaret critiques it and offers suggestions regarding how my lesson plan could be improved. I hope that you get as much out of this little role play as I did. This episode is all about reading comprehension. And for any teachers who are keen to improve this skill within their students, this is going to be an incredibly valuable episode for you. Also on the topic of books, I'm excited to announce that my brand new book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action, is now out. If you'd like to read a book that John Sweller has described as an indispensable guide to cognitive load theory for teachers, then go to ollielovell.com forward slash book or see the link in the show notes to get your hands on a copy. This month's episode is brought to you by John Cat Educational. If you'd like 30% off all books from John Cat, you can use the code ERRR30 for that special ERRR podcast deal. And this month, I wanted to highlight one particular book from JCE that's just come out, and that is Fear is the Mind Killer by James Mannion and Kate McAllister. And as a way to communicate the value of James and Kate's book, I wanted to read out the legendary Dylan Williams review of the book in full. Here it is. Dylan writes, As school systems around the world recognise that they are preparing their students for a world that no one can imagine, attention has, perhaps unsurprisingly, turned to whether it is possible to teach learners how to learn. And this has led to a rather polarised debate. On one side are those who argue that our traditional curriculum is unfit for the needs of today's learners and that we should instead focus on so-called 21st century skills. At the other end are those who provide mountains of evidence that such skills tend to be highly specific to particular subjects and that learners rarely transfer what they have learned in one subject area to another. The truth is that both sides are right about some things. Some of what we need our students to learn are highly specific to a subject, but there are also ideas that go across the whole curriculum. The challenge is to discover what those ideas are and how they can be effectively incorporated into the curriculum. Dylan continues. This is why Fear is the Mind Killer by James Mannion and Kate McAllister is so welcome. 
The book tells the story of the implementation of a learning-to-learn curriculum in an English secondary school and how that approach increased student achievement while at the same time closing the gap in achievement between students from more affluent and less affluent homes. More importantly, the story is told in sufficient detail that it provides a clear plan for how to implement such a curriculum elsewhere, with honest discussions of the challenges and difficulties encountered. I don't know of any other book that provides such clear guidance on how to harness the common elements of learning across a curriculum, bringing greater coherence to people's experiences in school, whilst at the same time respecting the real differences between school subjects. Highly recommended. If you'd like to hear more about the book, you can listen back to episode 43 of the E2B Love podcast. And to purchase a copy, please see the link in the show notes. And a reminder for that code for 30% off is ERR30. Now, without further ado, let's jump into episode 47 of the E2B Love podcast with Margaret McCown. Margaret McCown, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. First question we usually ask people is, if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Margaret, what is it that you do? What's your answer? Yeah, I always find that hard because I want a short way to say it. But basically what I say is I do research on reading comprehension and vocabulary for kids and spend a lot of time in classrooms. Cool. Sounds like a great job. What do you believe should be the purpose of school-based education? That's such a big question. I don't know. I think it it would have something to do with giving kids the resources to meet their goals in life so that they can make good decisions, evaluate information, read and write so that they can get the tasks done that they want to get done. And I think other parts of it would be an openness to learning and to understand that learning is something delicious. I mean, even if it's not always easy, Even if you don't always want to learn certain things, it's still this delicious enterprise. Love that. (laughs) Can you tell us a bit about your career to date and maybe tie it into how we ended up at questioning the author? Yeah, sure. Well, I started out as an elementary school teacher. I taught kids second grade up through sixth grade. I always felt like I needed time to think about what was going on with them. So I came to this idea that I thought I wanted to do research. I didn't even really know what research was, but it seemed like it would be something that would give me time to think about kids' problems. So I was lucky enough to get a job at the Learning Research and Development Center with Isabel Back being her research assistant. And I just loved the work that she and I were doing. So then I became a graduate student and then eventually her research partner because something about the way that we work together and the the way we wanted to do work really, really clicked. We'll go back and forth from doing a lot of reading and research and looking at instructional materials and then going into classrooms and seeing were kids really learning what people were expecting them to learn. And so what led us to questioning the author through that was we would notice when we observed some classes that kids were not having very good comprehension. We noticed it at first in social studies because we were studying social studies textbooks and thinking, well, what are kids getting out of these? Because they were really poorly written. And then when we went to talk to kids about them, it was just awful. They just didn't have the first thing to say. And typical thing that I think that really hit me was sitting with a kid. I've got like a page for him to read. He reads through it. Okay, you finished? Mm Mm-hmm. You read it? Mm -hmm. You understand it? Mm Mm-hmm. What was it about? 
Mm. I mean, <laughs> didn't he had no idea what understanding something meant. So Isabel and I started saying, okay, what do we have to do? Should we have kids read aloud and like stop them at the end of every sentence and say, so what was that about? What were you thinking? And so we kind of moved into it from that. Mm. Wow, Hughes, did you want to just give us, because QTA, like the book that I've just read is, I think it's titled 15 Years On or something. It comes 15 years after the initial book. And so it has, you've given us quite a, a brief history there, but it's actually it sounds like it's been a huge journey. Do you want to just take us into a little bit more detail about the amount of work that's gone into this approach? Sure. Oh, yeah. So we started with these ideas about having kids talk to us about what they were reading. And we first did that in a small Catholic school nearby, just working individually with kids on our own. And then we got two teachers there who were interested in working with us. And we implemented the approach in their classrooms for a full year and gathered a lot of data, did a lot of observations. And then from there, we added some more teachers. And then after that, we started a couple of things. We started implementations in various parts of the country because we started speaking about the approach and people were interested. And so there were there was a school at district in Texas and Sacramento and Kansas City that wanted us to come and work with them. So we did a lot of implementation work. So that meant training teachers, doing demonstration lessons, observing classes, and then eventually in some of the schools, training some people as coaches. So they would do the job of going in and observing and talking to teachers. For a couple of years, we had Question the Author up and running in all the Pittsburgh elementary schools. So we had a set of coaches who would go in and observe. And so that's what happened. It rolled through development to research to implementation in a variety of places. Cool. I think you've hit on a massive issue here, your little anecdote there about having a kid read through a passage and say, oh yeah, I get it, and then not be able to tell you anything about it probably rings true for a lot of teachers. And something that we've explored on the podcast before as well, this idea of comprehension and the kind of approaches that I've come across in my reading before questioning the author, there were basically two of them, and though you did detail more in your book. And one is the kind of idea about reading strategies, which from my research and reading, I've got the sense is probably the dominant approach within America, at least. And then contrary to that, and I had Natalie Wexler on the podcast to discuss her book, The Knowledge Gap, is this kind of E.D. Hirsch approach where it's like knowledge is the foundation and students need background knowledge. And if they have the knowledge, they'll be able to comprehend it. If they don't have the knowledge, they won't be able to comprehend it. Could you maybe paint a little bit of a picture, like maybe round out my very kind of simple <laughs> summary there with a little bit more detail and maybe help us to see how questioning the author is different to these two approaches. Yeah, it's quite different. So strategies, I think you're right. It probably is the dominant approach right now. And actually when Isabel and I started thinking about, okay, what are we going to do to help kids? We started with strategies. We said, okay, what strategies can we teach them? And as we started to look at that, we thought this just doesn't seem right because it seems like you're kind of giving kids these structural things instead of taking them into the text. Like, let's dig into the text. Let's take the lid off text and see what's going on in there. Instead, you were giving them these other things to do. Think about what a main idea is. Find a main idea. Think about what a prediction is. Make a prediction. And we weren't comfortable with that. We didn't think that that was really the way to go and still very strongly think that. It's adding an extra layer. It doesn't have anything to do with text. 
In fact, we did a study where we taught, had teachers involved, two of whom did strategies instruction and two of whom did basically a question to the author approach. And then we had two that just did whatever was in their basal reader. And we had it run over two years. And the question the author approach came out significantly better. Kids could recall more. They were able to transfer what they learned to new passages. So we really pride ourselves in that. But then I get a little annoyed because people just talk about strategies and how strategies are proven to be good. And I'm like, wait a minute, would you go back and read my article, please? At least acknowledge that maybe that's not the case. So the problem with strategies basically is that it gives kids this other layer of structural things to do. Background knowledge, it's very important, but I don't see how it's an approach to reading. That's kind of like saying text is the most important thing in reading comprehension. Well, of course it is, but you can't just give kids a text and expect them to have good comprehension. So it's like you can't just give kids knowledge and expect them to have good comprehension. They need to be able to read, to get through the words, to understand what it means to put ideas together, and also what it means to integrate their knowledge with the text. Lots of times, there are just tons of studies out there showing that not only kids, but adults might know something, but if they don't bring that knowledge to bear in the right way, they're not going to understand the text. So knowledge... It's a funny thing. I keep seeing it out there, how that's that's the new big thing. Well, we've been talking about that for a while, but it's not, you know, you have to be aware of it, but it's not going to give you reading comprehension. Mm. You made some good points in the book as well about the fact that once people can read effectively, they gain a lot of their knowledge through reading. Therefore, the, the assumption that just having the knowledge facilitates the comprehension, it kind of maybe gets the causality in some contexts. Yeah. And that's a big thing that worries me about the way that teachers might implement this idea of knowledge in school. They'll spend half the reading time talking to kids about or showing them a video to stuff knowledge into their head. And that takes time away from reading instead of reading. So again, with the question the author approach, what you can do is take a text. And if you think kids aren't going to know some things in the text, start reading with them. Ask them about what they think's going on. If they seem like, huh? Then say, oh, you know, maybe you don't know what here. Let me tell you what such and such is. But do it online as the reading is going on, because then, one, you're still reading. And two, it gives a chance to integrate knowledge with reading. I was interested to hear there, you said that you and Isabel actually started out with the strategies approach. I'm sure many teachers in their teacher training starting out with the strategies approach as well. Can you think of a moment or an instance or an example where yourself and Isabel thought, this isn't working and we actually need a fundamentally different approach? How did you come to that realization? I think that we didn't even get as far as trying it with kids. We started saying to each other, okay, so kids aren't understanding, so how are we gonna help them? All right, strategies are hanging around. So we sort of approached it as, well, let's look at the strategies and think about the ones that we think are going to be important to teach kids. And as we read about the strategies, we'd say, well, wait a minute. We'd sort of brainstorm with each other. Okay, here's how I'm going to teach you this strategy of, I don't know, main idea or asking a question. And then we kind of go, wait a minute. I'm not sure what to say to you. I'm not talking about the text. And we kept going back to the text. And that's why we refer to questioning the author as a content approach. It's just 
focusing on the content. What is it that the author's trying to tell you? Let's deal with that and put that together. Mm. I've got this image in my mind right now of like, there's the meaning and then there's the text and you're trying to help students like drill through the text to the meaning. And then what you're saying to me is like strategies are a target over at some other place that you're trying to take them by this other route, which is longer and more convoluted to get to the meaning rather than just drilling straight through the text. So if that's the case, I'm curious, how and why do you think these strategies evolved when it seems simple when you put it your way that you just drill through the text? Yeah. Well, I think because it came kind of from looking at what good readers do, what do good readers focus on? Well, they'll focus on the main idea. Oh, let's teach kids what a main idea is. Good readers ask themselves questions as they read. Oh, let's teach kids how to ask questions. So it was sort of a taking apart rather than integrating that into the process that I think that's how it came about. That's really interesting. And that's kind of, it's a theme in a lot of areas of education, I think. And it's the idea that getting people to the final product the practice you need to do to get there often doesn't look like the actual final product. So an example that Daisy Christodoulou uses is a marathon runner wants to run a marathon, but the way they get there isn't by trying to run a marathon every day. They actually incrementally build up. They do other training like stretches. They do weight exercises and things like that. So that's really interesting. One thing that really struck me at the start of the book was your description of the process of reading comprehension. And you called this the cognitive processing view of reading comprehension as the kind of the thing that undergirds the whole of this approach. Can you tell us a bit about the cognitive processing view? Yeah, that's a view that's really become standard fare now in, in reading. I think everybody refers to it in one way or another, whether it's Kinchin Van Dyke or Vandenbroek, but it's basically two things. You're deciding what to focus your attention on as you read and connecting that to other ideas as you move along. So think of it every time you read you know, a sentence or a couple of sentences, you're kind of pulling from that what you think is important for the whole of what you're going to be reading. And then you move on to the next bit and you're trying to connect that to the important stuff that you're holding from before. And so you just keep moving through the text that way as it builds up into something meaningful. And then if something happens, like you get to somewhere and you go, mm, I don't see the connection, usually a good reader will just like move back. Well, what should I be connecting instead? And if that doesn't work, they say, well, I guess maybe I'll just have to read on and let it go till I figure something out. And that's basically it. Focusing your attention on what you think is important and connecting that to the next piece. That's great. And so just then you kind of emphasize making connections within the text and something else you emphasize in the book. And this is built on my understanding of what it means to understand something. To understand something is basically to connect it to other things, usually in the outside world or in your own long-term memory. And so that's something else you really emphasize in the book, which I love, which is coming to understand a text is basically just connecting what you're reading within the text and then also to your background knowledge. Very powerful model. So if that's the case, what is the questioning the author approach and how does it try to scaffold students to make these connections? Well, basically, it tries to kind of take them through the process, like make that process visible. So we read together, which means got a group or a class and one person, usually the teacher will start however far along she wants to go, then stops and asks the question, what's going on here? What do you think of that so far? 
kids respond. Sometimes just one response will be fine and we move on. Sometimes it'll say something and then the teacher will want to let that build because it's a really important part. So she'll follow up the query, call in somebody else, and then go back into read another part and then say, so now what do we see? And at some point, the teacher will say, so how does that connect? But often that's not necessary because kids will, in their response to the second or third time a teacher has said, what's going on? They will connect it. They'll see, well, that's now we see the guy moving on to the fire truck. Um, okay. I think maybe one way for us to make this really clear to people is to talk about the planning process for questioning the author. And I must say, I absolutely loved your book. I actually think it's written in the way that books for teachers should be written. It starts <laughs> with some really clear theory, um, cognitive processing view, foundation, puts it within the context of strategy instruction and other approaches to reading comprehension. And then it jumps into worked examples. It's like, this is what you need to do to plan a lesson. This is what a lesson plan looks like. And it was just so crystal clear and so actionable. I absolutely loved it. So could you talk us through the process of how someone can plan for questioning the author? Yeah, it takes reading the text pretty carefully. And what we say is have a pencil in your hand and mark it. Keep underlining things. When you get to something that you think is going to be important or something that's surprising or something that you think kids will trip over, and then decide where you want to stop them the first time, let's say, to start the discussion of collecting the information and sort of paraphrasing it. So marking segments in the text where you're going to stop and then think of what you will ask each time and also thinking of what might kids trip up on. And so what might I have to do to follow up on a problem or a misunderstanding? Yeah, that's basically it. Okay. There was another step that came a little bit before that, which was the idea of identifying the major understandings. How does that fit into this picture? Absolutely. Sorry, because that's a huge one. Is to read it after reading a text that you're going to do with kids and say, okay, what do I want kids to get out of this? So it's a little bit like a summary, but it's it's more what was going on there. Like say we have a simple story like the three bears. Goldilocks goes to their house and tries to eat their food and tries to sleep in their beds. And then they come home and find her and she goes running out of the house. A summary, but you put in the connections that might not be there in the summary. And it doesn't have to be a literal summary. It just has to capture what was the big deal or what was important about that story. Mm. Yeah. And you capture that really well with the dinner conversation analogy. Did you want to expand upon that for listeners? Yeah. One of our goals in questioning author was to get teachers and kids out of the habit of talking in school language, having everything kind of sound like a test question or a test answer. Really, questioning author should be very conversational, just like when you talk to yourself when you're thinking about a book or a story that you're reading. So we said, think of the main of the major understanding as what you would want kids to say at the dinner table. If they go home and mom or dad or grandpa says, so what'd you read in school today? What would you want actually to come out of that kid's mouth? Well, the story was about, okay, fill it in. That's the major understanding. Mm. Yeah, I love that. And I thought it was really powerful. And I thought even be valuable for me to take this 
dinner conversation idea and use it in my higher level maths or physics class and think when I'm teaching a concept like the photoallergic effect, what do I want kids to be able to say to their parents or someone who I ask them to explain to them in simple terms, what did you learn in physics today? And if we can actually get students to that point, it means that they've got a pretty solid understanding of the concepts that we can then build upon. Yeah, exactly. If instead of parroting the line that was in the book or the definition that if they can explain it in their own terms, a kind of a casual way, yeah, then you know that that's understanding. Mm, cool. <laughs> You're very concise in your answers, Modi, <laughs> um, which means that I'm having to work a lot harder than I usually do in the <laughs> interviews, but that's good. You're putting me through my paces. Yeah. I appreciate that. My co-author, Isabel, says, I'm the K-I-S-S person. Keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> so <Yep. laughs> and my colleagues who I work with writing papers, it's always, if the paper's too wordy, I'm the one who gets it last to pare it down. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's a really valuable skill. <laughs> yeah, nice work. I guess something that really struck me about the questioning the author approach is, before we talked about the things that successful readers do, which is like summarizing, finding the main points, but one of the key things that successful readers do is really question the author and have a kind of internal dialogue. And I spoke to Alexander Renkel about this in terms of the self-explanation effect a few episodes ago, but they have an internal dialogue about what's going on. So reading about questioning the author made intrinsic sense to me because it's exactly what I do, for example, when I was reading your book and exactly what I do when I plan for these podcasts in which I actually do get to question the author, which is a wonderful privilege that I have. So I write questions like I pause and I say, what the heck do you mean? Or like, you've explained this really well, or you need to tell me more about this, or I disagree with this because, or I agree with this because. And so it made intrinsic sense to me. Do you have any comments about that, in, about the way in which it actually trains students to, you're kind of providing an external scaffold for students to learn to question the author in a way that we want them to eventually learn to do internally? Yeah, that's exactly right. When we, I'm not sure that we put this in the current book because we had so much stuff we were trying, you know, new stuff we were trying to get in. But we first started to talk about what well, we would say to kids, when you sit down and read something, this is just something that somebody wrote. And that's called the author. And they wrote it and they didn't know you and they don't know what you know. And sometimes people can explain things really well, sometimes not so well, and sometimes not so well to you because they don't know what you already know. So when we read, we have to figure out what is the author trying to tell us? What does the author want us to know? And sometimes we've got to fix what the author did. And sometimes it's not all there. And we have to think really hard about it before we figure out what was the author trying to say to us. So in doing that, we were trying several things. One, to take the author down a peg because we didn't want kids to act like, it's a textbook, it's right. Uh, if I don't get it, it's on me. We wanted to just absolutely cancel that and say, it's not on you, it's on the author. But also to say, it's also on you as the reader. You have to work with the author. It's not like the author has something and you put it on your head. You have to work with what the author's given you to come to understand some meaning or message or set of ideas. Mm, 
That's really powerful because it highlights, I guess, a few things for me. One is the contestability of knowledge. By positioning the author, like you said, putting them down a peg, it shows that this person isn't infallible and actually what they've written might not make sense. It might be explained poorly. It might even be incorrect. And which then feeds into the idea of supporting students to be more critical thinkers because if they recognize that what they're reading might not be from a reputable source or explained poorly, then it opens up a space for them to start to question it more fully. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. In fact, yes, it does. And more and more currently with so much disinformation and nonsense. But I hadn't thought about this in a long time. But one of the first school systems we went to kind of ask if we could work with some teachers and implement questioning authors is for after our very initial work the first year, we went to a school system and explained this whole thing about the author. And the principal basically said to us, I don't want kids asking questions. I don't want kids questioning the author. Like, okay, bye-bye. We don't want to work here. You know? Wow. But yeah, so exactly. I mean, it, it was threatening to him. Yeah, that's scary. All right, so maybe a good thing for us to turn to now is give listeners a bit of a sense of what the questioning the author process can look like. And as I said, in your book, you offered some worked examples, which were super helpful. And I thought we could do the same for listeners now, but also I wanted to get some feedback on some independent practice that I've done based upon a sample that you've sent. So just for listeners' benefit, Margaret sent me a story, uh, a very short one, and I have tried to implement the questioning the author approach and actually plan a lesson based upon this short text. And just to recap, That planning process included step one is reading the text and trying to identify the major understandings that students, we want students to take away. Step two is trying to segment the text. And this is kind of in two parts. You segment the text to punctuate it with sec points that you want to have short discussion with students and ask them queries. And at the same time, you try to be aware of the things that are likely to trip students up within the text. So tricky words or turns of phrase or things like that. And then the third thing is really targeting queries and questioning the author talks about queries rather than questions. So we might talk about the distinction a little bit later, but identifying initiating queries to start conversations at these punctuation points and then follow up queries to really often address the key things that are likely to have tripped students up, but also to help pull out those key understandings that we're really trying to get help students to get to. So that's what I've tried to do. Okay. And we'll see, we'll see how well I've done uh, a year 12 maths and physics teacher trying to do some reading instruction, but we'll see what happens. Dear listeners, I'm about to read out a story that Margaret and I will subsequently dissect based upon the QTA framework. But before that, I just wanted to say that if you have already read the book, Questioning the Author, or are familiar with the process and you want to check your own QTA skills, I highly recommend that after hearing this story, you pause and try to plan a lesson based upon the story yourself prior to moving on. The version of this traditional story that I'm about to read comes from Lawrence Millman's book, A Kayak Full of Ghosts. Eskimo folktales. And Lawrence has generously given me permission to reproduce this story in full within the blog post associated with this podcast. So if you're a budding practitioner of questioning the author, I do suggest that you go to the show notes, find the full story, then have a go at planning a lesson for yourself prior to listening on. This is exactly what I did, planning a lesson based upon the story, and then Margaret provided feedback on my plan and suggested how she would run a QTA session based upon the story herself. This approach really helped me to get a better sense of how secure my knowledge of the QTA approach was, and I hope it does the same for you too. 
If this whole QTA thing is new to you, then please feel free to just listen on and enjoy hearing about my breakdown of the lesson and Margaret's feedback. But first, here's a story in full, The Raven and the Whale. There was once a raven who accidentally flew into the mouth of a big bow-headed whale. He flew right down the throat and ended up in the belly. There he saw a little house built of ribs and soft hides, a shabby little house just like a human dwelling. Inside the house was a young woman minding a blubber lamp. You may stay here as long as you like, she told him, but you must never touch this lamp, for the lamp was the whale's heart. The raven decided to stay there for quite a while. The woman was very pleasant company. Likewise, she did all the work. Eat, she'd say, and offer him some fish, mussels or crabs, which the whale had swallowed. There would be more mactook than he could eat in a dozen lifetimes. Is there anything you would like? The woman would ask him. Yes, said the raven. I would like to touch the lamp. You must never, never touch the lamp, she told him. But this made the raven even more curious. More than anything else, he wanted to touch the lamp. He gazed at it for long hours, and once, while the woman's back was turned, he walked up and pecked at it. Instantly, the lamp went out, and the woman fell down, dead. Now the raven stumbled around in the dark. At last he found the throat passage and crawled through it. Then he climbed on top of the whale, which was dead. He saw that they were floating towards a human village, so he turned himself into a man. Behold, he exclaimed, I've just killed this enormous bow-headed whale without even using a harpoon. No one believed him. Perhaps he could show off his hunting prowess once again. Whenever you wish, he declared. And he went to live in that village, waiting for the opportunity to show off his ability. Then one day, a herd of narwhals was sighted in the harbour. Leave this to me, he said. He got into a kayak and paddled it towards the herd. Almost at once, the kayak was knocked over and he was pierced by a narwhal's horn. Thus did the mighty hunter die. But as he died, he turned back into a raven and was eaten by one of the narwhals. So that was the full text. So from here, I think that one approach we can take, Margaret, is if you would actually just read portions and then I'll say pause at the pause point and then you would get to see where my pause points are and then I'll just kind of pose the queries and then you can just let me know right there and then if you think that's a good query, how I could improve that query or anything like that. And then we'll keep going through. Is that okay? Or is, do you have an alternate approach? Yeah, that's fine. I, I just wanted to ask you if you were going to share the major understanding that you came up with now or later. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. All right. So the major understandings that I came up with were as follows. The students need a sense that this is a magical rather than a literal story. So it's important for them to grasp, but though they'll probably grasp that quite quickly already. Key understandings, a raven entered a whale and met a woman with a lamp. <laughs> The woman was friendly and welcoming. She told the raven never to touch the lamp because it was the whale's heart. The woman cared for the raven and he had a good life there with lots of food, but he couldn't resist the temptation to touch the heart. So one day he pecked it and the woman and the whale died. The raven turned into a man and convinced the village that he was a great hunter and had killed the whale without a harpoon. After living in the village for a while, the man wanted to prove that he was a great hunter by killing some more whales, this time narwhals, but when he tried, he was killed. And there's a moral to the story, which I'm not 100% sure what it is. <laughs> and that's one of the queries that I have at the end, and I would look forward to what students would say. But I anticipate it's something around respecting life or the role that we each play or the sanctity of life, Or, but I'm not that sure, and maybe that's something we can get into. <laughs> All right, so let's... First, do you have any comments on that? 
Yeah, I think that's probably pretty good. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. Shoot straight, Margaret. I'm happy to be torn down here. I think the thing that I would stress at the end, so he was killed by these, went out to hunt the whales and he was killed by them, but he rose up again, turned back into a raven and was eaten by one of the whales. He did, yeah. 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 Which okay. I think is, well, we can talk about that at the end. But. Okay. Interesting. All right. All right. So would you just start reading and then I'll, I'll pause you when at my pause points and then use my queries. Okay. There was once a raven who by accident flew into the mouth of a big bow-headed whale. He flew right down the throat and ended up in the belly. There he saw a little house built of ribs and soft hides, a shabby little house, just like a human dwelling. Pause. Okay. okay, so my question here, well, first my decision and comments of why I'm pausing here is the kind of idea that we've set the scene, but we've also encountered a few tricky words such as bowhead, hides, shabby and dwelling, which students may struggle with. And I guess we should set the scene of which kind of age group this would be pitched at. So, I mean, the students I had in mind, I've actually taught some students even at the year 11 and 12 level who I just have very weak language skills. And so some of them are foreign language students, but some of them are just low SES kids who just really haven't had much support along the way. So I just had them in mind and I've had some experience with that in the past, but what kind of age group would you usually pitch this story at? I would say probably 12 would be an ideal age. So for my thinking, like middle school could even be early high school. Okay, cool, cool. All right. So my first query is just what has happened so far? Mm -hmm. And then my follow-up would be sharing with students. Okay, so a dwelling is a place where someone lives. And this one is made of hides, which is another word for animal skins. The author describes this dwelling as shabby. Why do you think the author chose to describe this dwelling as shabby? And from there, the idea is if the students struggle with the def, we can offer the definition of shabby, which we could say is something is shabby if it's worn out because it has been used a lot. So yeah, any thoughts about that pause point, the query and the follow-up? Lots of thoughts. <laughs> I probably would not have stopped there. Or if I stopped there, I would just, so I've just a house made of ribs and soft hide, a shabby house, just like a human dwelling. I probably would have gone, what? Where are we? just to establish this really oddball setting. Mm. And I imagine kids would kind of laugh and then I'd say, so what's this story? A raven flew down and expect kids to say something like, well, a raven flew into a whale and found like this house there. Yeah, uh-huh. And then I'd go on. I don't think I'd deal with the vocabulary there because even if kids don't know it, it's not going to really cause a comprehension problem. And since it's so early in the story, like bow-headed whale, you know, it's a whale. Ended up in the belly, saw a house built of ribs, at least ribs they know, soft hides. It's a little house inside a whale. Mm. Shabby little house. Because shabby doesn't give you anything. Why would it be shabby? I mean, it's just such an odd use of the word. So I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even mess with that. So again, if I stopped, I might, when I went through this again and looked at my, my plans, I would be unsure whether I would stop there. And if I did, it would just be to say, what? And have kids realize, oh, this is kind of wacky. Okay. So that's my thoughts. Cool, cool, cool. So that's really valuable. So I guess what I've learned from that is, number one, 
students are probably going to get that key understanding anyway. I think I put that key understanding as a raven flew into a whale and found a house in there or something like that. They're going to get that. They don't need this vocab. The other thing, something you did use in the book, you used some question frames like, why do you think the author chose to describe this dwelling as shabby in order to bring out various words? So in the bridge story, you said, why did the author use the word dilapidated to describe the bridge, for example? But then that relates to another thing you're saying in the book about when to emphasize and draw out vocabulary. And you talked about the mileage that certain vocabulary has. And if that if a vocabulary word has a lot of mileage, which means students, it's a tier two word, which means everyday sorry, more academic-y word, but not necessarily related to a certain domain of knowledge. So if it's a tier two word that students are going to get a lot of use out of subsequently, maybe it's worth stopping on. So you don't see shabby as, as one of those words? Well, it's kind of at the edge, but even more importantly, it doesn't do anything for the story. Like in the bridge story, dilapidated was a hugely important concept because the whole plot of the story hung on the fact that their bridge was going to fall apart. So there, it was one important the kids knew that, but they would have known that from other things in the story. But that that word, that could be that whole concept in the story that was sort of the starting point, the, con the problem that they were trying to solve, that word captured it. So that's why it, that was a good word to, to teach. That's really valuable. And I guess another way to think about that is if students told the story of that bridge, so for listeners, there was a bridge in a town that was going to fall down. It was the town's connection to the rest of the world. And so if the town fell down, they would have been disconnected. So it was really important. So if a student told that back at dinner time, they could actually use the word dilapidated to describe the bridge, which is a key idea within the story. Whereas here, you wouldn't necessarily want the student to use the word shabby to explain the house because it doesn't tell us anything yeah. additional. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the important thing about this house is that it's inside a whale, you know? <laughs> so whether it was shabby or lavish, it's not so important. Mm. Okay, cool. Great. Let's continue. If you okay. want to keep reading. Yes. I'm worried about the rest of my questions now, but that's okay. Let's just go with it. <laughs> oh no, let's do it. Yeah. I mean, and you could give it to me and then say, eh, you know, rethinking it, whatever. Inside this house was a young woman minding a blubber lamp. You may stay here as long as you like, she told him, but you must never touch this lamp, for the lamp was the whale's heart. The raven decided to stay there for quite a while. Pause. Okay. Well, obviously, I know that I've missed my pause point because you paused after yeah, heart, no. which is <laughs> it's like automatic for you. So here, I guess we will introduce you to the crucial feature, which is the lamp, which is a heart. So I thought it's a good place to stop. And the query I thought of to start off with is, now what's going on, which is pretty open. And then after that, I had written a follow-up could be blubber is another name for whale fat and it burns well. So in the old days, it was used for lighting and many other things. What does the author want us to know about this blubber lamp? So any thoughts about that pause point and those queries? Yeah, I mean, I definitely actually would have stopped there. I think the idea of explaining blubber is good, but just exact, just say it, you know. To, and I think, now see, you know, one of the things you were interested in was what do novice teachers often do? And I think you just did one of them. To be less kind to myself, what mistakes do novice teachers usually make when um, planning a question in the author session? There really aren't mistakes. There's just, you try it and then you change it. You see what, you get feedback right away because the kids are there. If it wasn't the right query, then you're not going to get the right stuff from them and you can change it. 
mm-hmm. teachers tend to sort of overuse what's going on. Because I would say in that part, nothing was going on. It's just telling you that it's just sort of more setup of the woman says he can stay, but he must not touch the lamp because it's the heart of the whale. And so it's not going on. So I think what I would have said is, so what did we learn? Mm-hmm. Okay. Or what's the author given us now? Or, or now what do we know about this? Yeah. Okay. So it's less of action, but we've, we've learned something. Okay. So that would be a better query. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So before we read the next section, I've had the idea of giving some students a little bit of vocab pre-instruction, which is in the next section, we'll hear about the raven and the woman eating maktuk, which is a food made from the skin and blubber of a whale. Would you ever do that? No. Why not? I would wait till we got to the word and I would say maktuk is food made from the skin and blubber of a whale. Okay, so you literally just pause straight after the word's been said and just give the definition right there in text. Okay, cool, cool. All right, please continue. Okay. The raven decided to stay there for quite a while. The woman was very pleasant company. Likewise, she did all the work. Eat, she'd say, and offer him some fish, mussels, or crabs, which the whale had swallowed. There would be more McTuck than he could eat in a dozen lifetimes. Is there anything you would like? The woman would ask him. Yes, said the raven. I would like to touch the lamp. You must never, never touch the lamp, she told him. But this made the raven even more curious. More than anything else, he wanted to touch that lamp. He gazed at it for hours. And once, while the woman's back was turned, he walked up and pecked at it. Instantly, the lamp went out and the woman fell down dead. Okay, pause. Okay. So I'm wondering if I've left this one too long. But anyway, my query. So basically, I, I think we've had a bit of the setup. We got a sense that time had passed, but then the curiosity of the raven got to the better of him. So he took the action and, and pecked the lamp, basically. So my query here is, what has happened? And then my follow-up was, how do you think the author wants you to feel about the raven's decision? And then how does the author do this? Mm. Yeah. I think you, you did go too long because kids are going to have to backtrack and kind of fill all that in rather than building it as they're moving through. Mm. So what was your initial query again? What has happened? What has happened? So I think a lot of times kids w- would say, he killed the whale now. Mm. And so you're going to have to push from there because, yeah, he did. But a lot of stuff built up to that. So. There are a couple things that I like to do with this story. So in that there's the part where it says the woman was pleasant company. She did all the work. She gave him all his food. I stop and say, so how do things look for the raven? For them to realize he's got a great life now. And if they just say, you know, oh, pretty good. I'd say, what kind of life is he having? Really getting them to see, wow, he's living the high life, man. And then is there anything you'd like? Yes, I'd like to touch the lamp. You must never touch the lamp. I like to stop there just because it's so important and say, what do you make of this? And partly because to, again, punctuate that you must never touch the lamp. What do you make of this? Well, it's really important. He's not supposed to touch the lamp because it's the whale's heart. And then I handle it depending on the kid's response. There or that after another small chunk, this made him even more curious. More than anything else, he wanted to touch the lamp. He gazed at it for hours. I'll say, so... What do you think? And kids will say, he's going to touch the lamp. (laughs) 
that kind of builds the suspense and it gives them that outlet to say, oh, he's going to touch the lamp. But sometimes they will have already said it in that previous paragraph. And then I, then I would read through and to where you stopped about when he, the woman fell down dead. Mm. And then, so some of the things I would ask there, how does that fit into what the woman had told the raven? Why do you think he'd do that? Peck the heart when she told him not to. So again, kind of trying to build the character of this guy. Who is this guy? You know? Mm. So yeah, those two things, which I think accomplish the same kind of thing you wanted to do, but it's saying we've stopped, we've talked about this. Now, how does this one now that he pecked the lamp and the woman was dead, how does that fit in? Well, he's been wanting to touch that lamp and now he's done it. That's good. So my follow-up there was, how do you think the author wants you to feel about the Raven's decision, which was trying to help the the student think about the picture of the Raven that's being painted as someone who can't resist his urges. What was the wording that you used to try to get students to reflect upon the character that is the Raven? Oh, why do you think he'd do that? What does that tell you about the Raven? Mm. And see, I think your question, you're falling into the trap of too academic-y. It was too long a question. I'd even ask it a couple of questions. But I, so you said, why does, no, say it again. How does the author want you to feel about the Raven's decision? Okay. So I would say, why do you think he'd do that? Would sort of gets it, even though it doesn't bring the author in really, but to say, why do he do that? And what does that tell you about the Raven? Could even be what, so what's the author want us, want us to think about this guy, this Raven? Mm. Yeah. Okay, so you broke it up into basically three smaller questions. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because my question actually had three elements in it, which is how do you think the author wants you to feel about the Raven's decision? It's actually very, it's very complex now that you point that out. A very academic question. If you were having kids like write an essay or something, mm. you might give that question. But it's again, we want this to be just really conversational. So that's, it's important to keep that in mind. That's really valuable. All right, let's continue. Now the raven stumbled around in the dark. At last, he found the throat passage and crawled through it. Then he climbed on top of the whale, which was dead. He saw that they were floating toward a human village, so he turned himself into a man. Behold, he exclaimed, I've just killed this enormous bow-headed whale without even using a harpoon. Pause. I think it's a good pause point because we've seen how the ravens reacted to what actually he's done. And so my first question is, what's going on now? And then the follow-up was, to exclaim something means to say it with feeling, and the raven exclaims, behold, why did the raven do this? Oh, yeah, that's nice. I like it because that gets to the character of him. He's basically bragging about, is that that what you're getting at? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, he might. Now, I would stop there too. But my question was, what's the raven up to now? Mm. So just, again, just kind of steer the kids to seeing the raven. What's he up to? You know, he's to just just keep that in sort of in character of we know this guy is bad and we know he's he's bound to be up to something else. So, yeah, but basically very similar to what you had. Yeah. Mm. But again, less academic. Yeah. So I also may have stopped depending on, again, getting a sense of the kids when it says he stumbled around, he found the throat passage, he climbed on top of the whale, which was dead and say, the whale was dead. Does that make sense? Just to check in again with the lamp was the whale's heart. Oh yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Because it, it says instantly the lamb went out and the woman fell down dead, which for us meant, of course, the whale was dead as well, but yeah, yeah. not necessarily for the students. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. There were a few words in there, like there was exclaimed, which I kind of said to students was saying something with feeling. There was also behold, which I targeted with like, why did the raven exclaim behold? Because then it would allow students to maybe show they don't understand behold, in which case we could give it or one of the students might have volunteered the meaning of it. But there's also the word harpoon in there that I thought might have tripped students up. So did would you have done anything around those three words at all? Uh, probably not. Because, I mean, exclaimed, I think was good. That's a good way to go into it. I don't think I would do behold because I think behold, it doesn't, I don't know that it even has that much meaning. It's like, hey, <laughs> look at me. And just the way it's written. And I think it's better to talk about just exclaim by itself. Mm. And harpoon, yeah, that would probably be good to say without even using a harpoon, to just quickly say a harpoon is what people use to kill whales. It's a very, very long, like sharp spear. Okay, that's a good point. And the word behold, like you said, even if we just took that out, you could just say, he exclaimed, I've just killed the enormous bowhead whale without even, and like it makes perfect sense. So I guess that's the lesson I'm starting to draw from this. If the word is something that you could take out and the students could still understand, it's not something you need to spend a lot of time on. Right. Okay. No one believed him. Perhaps he could show off his hunting prowess once again, whenever you wish, he declared. And he went to live in that village, waiting for the opportunity to show off his ability. Then one day, a herd of narwhals was sighted in the harbor. Narwhals are a type of whale with a big horn on the front of their head. Yeah. Leave this to me, he said. He got into a kayak and paddled it toward the herd. Almost at once, the kayak was knocked over and he was pierced by a narwhal's horn. Thus did the mighty hunter die. But as he died, he turned back into a raven and was eaten by one of the narwhals. Okay, interesting. So I, I noticed you, you you paused after and paddled towards the herd, which was another point of suspense building at which you'd think the kids would maybe want to make some prediction about what's going to happen or call something out or get excited about what's about to happen. So I, I anticipate that that's where you'd pause as well. I just let that that moment of opportunity pass. And so we're here, we're here at the end of this story. And so my query was, how did things turn out for the raven? And then the follow-up I'd written was, in this section, the author tells us that the raven wanted to show off his hunting prowess. What does this tell us about the raven? Okay. Yeah. At the end, I mean, what I love so much about this ending is first the author says, thus did the mighty hunter die. Well, he was no mighty hunter. So that's hilarious. But as he died, he turned into a raven. And you think, oh, cool. He was tricky and was eaten by one of the narwhals. I mean, I just think it's so great. It's like, you think you're so cool? We killed you and now we're going to eat you. So like, he really got hit. So I would kind of let that play with the kids, like say, no, what was it that happened in the end to him? Because it kind of goes through, he's brave and then he gets pierced by the narwhal and then he becomes a raven and then he gets eaten. It's like, that happens in two sentences. So I want them to get it and then to say to them, why do you think the author chose to kill him twice? And so that's where I would really come to What's the author doing? What's the author trying to, to say? Uh, and I think that could be a really fun discussion because I'm sure there are going to be some kids that say, well, he was just so awful. He was rotten. He killed the whale. He killed the woman. So he deserved to get killed. I mean, that's sort of what I would expect, the direction I would expect it to go. And I think I would also, I might start out by saying, 
first, I think I would probably say, no, no, what was it that just happened? So we can get, okay, this killed twice. And then say, what do you think about the way the authors finished up this story? Because that may open it up for kids to say he got what he deserved. And if they don't, then I would move to saying, why do you suppose the author chose to kill him twice? Mm. Okay. I did have two wrap-up queries, and then maybe I'll ask the question. I was, so the first one was, what's the point the author's trying to make in this story? And then the follow-up I had was, the Inuit are people who live in very, very cold areas at the top of the world and hunt whales and other animals. This is a story from the Inuit. Why do you think that the Inuit told this story? Ah, that's nice. That's nice. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what kids would say. What would you want kids to say? And if they didn't say much, how would you pull something more out of them? Well, I guess there's a lot of good good questions. (laughs) In terms of what I want them to say, I guess there's a lot of themes about like respect, temptation. There's, I guess, the revenge of the animals and not to be boastful and all these different ideas and like, yeah, not to take risks because and things like that. So I guess I'd want some of that kind of stuff to come out and the role of maybe something about the role of stories in these kind of cultures to preserve these moral lessons that are actually act to benefit the inhabitants. You don't want to be hunting a whale and think you're a champion, can kill it without a harpoon and then you get stabbed by a narwhal, for example. In terms of how I'd draw that out, I don't know. It would be, I would wing it, I guess. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's probably right. But I think knowing what you want to get, you could kind of scaffold kids from there, like say, well, what, why would they have told the story? And if they're like, oh, I don't know, say, well, what, what's it trying to say about how you act, how someone acts? Or do you think the author's trying to say something about how people should act or not act? And then I think that those kinds of things would, would start to come out. And if Sometimes the kids would be sort of literal and stuck with, well, it was very, it was just about this raven. It's like, well, so he was just trying to talk about ravens and, you know, kind of challenge. And then, ah, you know, it starts to dawn on them. And then that whole theme of talking about it as an, as an Inuit tale, then is great because then it can easily lead into another story from either them or another indigenous people, let's say about an origin story or about other, and then say, so how were people using these stories? People were really using these stories and kids could start to understand that, which is a really important concept. The idea that people have used stories to, to teach and to pass on their history for a long time, but you don't want to tell kids that you want them to come around to it. Yeah. That's great. Well, that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story so much because it's got so much packed into this really short space so yeah oh yeah oh yeah and i will for for listeners and for patrons in particular i'll do a bit of a comparison of what i've done and then i'll i'll write up your pause points and your questions so that people can see a bit of a comparison there Dear listeners, each month, patrons of the ERRR podcast, those who make a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show, receive a summary of my key takeaways from the episode. This month, this document includes my summary of how to prepare for and carry out a questioning the author lesson based upon what I read in the QTA book and from this discussion that you've been listening to today. As mentioned, this summary also includes a breakdown of the story with my initially planned questions and the corrections and suggestions that Margaret provided for The Raven and the Whale. 
I do this in the hope that those using this summary will be able to learn from Margaret's feedback in a similar way to what I have. If you do enjoy the ERRR podcast, if you feel that you get value from it each month, and if you'd like to support the show and would like to receive a podcast summary to accompany each episode, I would be eternally grateful if you were to go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR and sign up to support the show for as little as a dollar per month or the average donation of five US dollars per month. Thank you so much to those who already support the show each month. It means the world to me. And with that, let's jump back into this episode of the ERRR podcast with Margaret McCown. One of the things I thought was really a great idea in your book was you dedicated a chapter and you said it was by popular demand, but it was <laughs> a chapter on the journey of a teacher from being a novice in this, as I am, to being more experienced. And I thought that was a really powerful chapter, but I, I have a question. Like you can see here, me here now, I did my best. It was okay. There were some good things I did. There were some lots of things that could have been improved a lot, a lot more. If I didn't have you to give me feedback and I just had my class and I ran this with my class and, you know, that happened week after week after week. And I was just a teacher in a school trying to work out how to do questioning the author myself. How do I actually tell if it's working? How do I work out how to improve and how to get better? What are the key things I should be looking for? I'm, I'm just not sure how I'd do that. Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, a couple of things. One thing that I would say to you is that if you had done this story exactly as you had planned it, I think kids would have understood it a lot better than they would have if they'd read it on their own and then had to answer some questions afterwards. It still, you still had the taking apart, the intervening, giving them a chance to talk about it is going to give you something. So I think a couple of things I'd say to teachers is one really great way is if you can record yourself, do an audio recording of the lesson, even of a part of a lesson and then listen to it, or ideally even transcribe it, then you can really go through and analyze it. And you can see, so if you had the feeling like something kind of went off the rails, or you really couldn't get things out of kids at one point, look at what happened and see, was it the wording of the question? Looking back on a lesson like that can really help you. Another thing is, it's just really listening to what kids say. I mean, questioning the author is a performance. It's a spontaneous performance every single time. So it's never going to be perfect because you just have to go out there and let it go because you have no idea what kids are going to say. You could know your students really well and still have no idea what they're going to say to a specific text. So it's always new and it's okay if it's not perfect. And it's okay if you missed a couple of things that, oh, they never really did understand that, or, oh, we spent way too much time discussing that. Yeah, that'll happen. That's okay. But just really listening carefully to the kids can tell you so much. And that really has to break down a super teacher habit that a teacher has a question in mind and she also has an answer in mind. Now, you should have expectations in mind. You kind of know what kids are going to say. So many times we would see a teacher ask a, a query. And then a, a kid would have an answer and she'd kind of go, hmm, no. And then she'd move on. And we're like, oh, he had it. He had it. But she just didn't understand the kid's language because it didn't match what she saw as the answer. So you just really listen to what your kids are saying and try not to say, no, that wasn't it, but say, oh, so wait a minute. Now you're thinking this, 
or like, well, where did you get that from? You really want to explore what kids are thinking and what they're getting from a text. That's going to guide you to what you need to ask, how deeply you need to ask. Also, I would tell the teacher to think about your tone. If your tone sounds like the kinds of questions that you or any other teacher typically asks in school, back off. Try to think of it as you're talking to a friend about a movie that you've both just seen. What'd you think of that? What was that all about? So wait a minute, why did that guy come in there and hit that other guy? That's the kind of tone you want to strike for a couple of reasons. One, because it gives kids the message, this is something different. We're really working to make sense of this. I'm not testing you on it. I'm not evaluating whether you're smart or not. We really want to think this through together. And also it it's motivating. It's a lot more fun to talk to a friend about a movie than it is to answer a teacher's question about a story. That's great, Moddy. And I think I'm so glad that we actually did that kind of role play <laughs> thing because that actually, you kind of ended up role playing some of the questions anyway. And it actually helped me to get a sense for that tone more than I managed to garner from the book. You could see like I was still asking quite um, academic questions, even though I was trying to use simple words, but it was just this academic idea was so baked into me that to kind of get out to that and to see the playfulness that you brought to that activity was just so, so incredibly valuable. Yeah, I think you make a good point, though. I don't think we emphasized that or demonstrated that to the extent we maybe enough in the book. It may be, I mean, it is hard to put that kind of thing in a book because to get that tone across in a book. But yeah, maybe we didn't do that as much as we as we could have, you know. Mm. As long as people listen to this podcast as well as reading the book, then they'll, <laughs> they'll be sorted. Another valuable thing there, you talked about really inquiring into students. And that reminds me, I did a podcast a few months ago with Aaron Peters about when students make a mistake in mathematics, really inquiring into how did you get that? And coming to understand the theories of action that underlie the students, what they've done. And I guess it's the same thing here. It's seeing your work as seeing yourself as a detective and really just trying to drill into that student understanding. You're talking about the danger of like having an answer in mind and checking basically that initiation kind of response evaluation framework, checking that students tick the box of what you think or what you're expecting. If you do take this inquiring approach, but students still don't seem to kind of get the main idea, what do you do? Well, you keep breaking it down. So let's say the Raven story, we read the first paragraph of the, uh, this dwelling, this young woman. And a kid says, okay, he's inside a whale, okay? Inside a whale. What's going on inside that whale? And it's like there was the heart. Okay, so you're saying, what about the heart? What did the author say? Send him back to the text. For the lamp was the whale's heart. The lamp, okay, what lamp? What? And so go back to the text and keep pushing on it. Either reread or say, well, where'd you get that? What do you mean a house? Until they put together a bigger picture and it'll grow. I mean, kids aren't going to be out of the box great at this, just like the teachers aren't. You're teaching them a different process, a different way to approach text. So don't expect that they're going to be great at first. And it's always, it's this constant recursive process. You ask an open query that you're really throwing it out there. So what's that about? I mean, that's really, kids could say anything it's about a whale, but a lady in a whale. About, it's about a shabby house, but just go dig into that. Now, what about this shabby house? Is this some shabby house on a street corner? 
no, 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 no. It's in a whale. In a whale? And then, so that's it. So there's a house in a whale. Is that what we got? Is that what the author wants us to know? And then somebody's going to say, oh, well, somebody flew down there. You just have to keep poking them and put it together. Now, what teachers tend to do is they get nervous and kid will say, it's about a whale. Okay, it's about a raven who flew into the mouth of a whale. Uh-huh. No, don't give it to them. They just keep going back to them and construct it. Mm. One thing teachers often feel the pressure of is kind of the bell. You know, you might have a 50-minute period for this and, yeah. and you end up spending 20 minutes digging into the first paragraph. What advice would you have to people? Is it kind of like just forget about, quote-unquote, finishing and just leave it for next time? What, what should teachers do? Yeah, that's always a tough one. I would say that at least some of the time, make sure you really dig in. And sometimes you can push it ahead a little if you really want to get through a story. But think of what it is you're trying to do. Is it that you want kids to have all these stories in their heads? Or do you want them to be able to approach a text and understand it? And if it's the latter, which hopefully it is, it doesn't matter if you only get halfway through the, the story. So I would say, yeah, take more time. You won't always be able to do that because sometimes you're going to have to get through a text in order to do, I don't know, whatever, writing assignment or something at the end of the text. But think of what the goal really is. And yes, it will take more time at first, but you and the kids will get used to this process and it will just yield a, a much, much richer reading experience. But yeah, it's it's true. It's it's hard. I mean, teachers do get discouraged because it seems to be taking for forever sometimes. So now just some kind of practical questions that I was trying to answer when I was or that came to mind whilst reading the book. And these are kind of short, quick fire ones. The first one is, does each student have their own text when you're reading this? Yeah, each student has their has the text in front of them. And somebody is the reader. When I did lessons, I always started off reading the first segment. And we tell the teachers, let students do the reading, but let it be your stronger readers. If you have readers who are very weak, don't call on them to read out loud because we want it to flow. And sometimes there are kids who are very struggling readers, but they want to read. And we'll say, they keep raising their hand, they want to read. They will give them short segments, give them just a sentence or two to read. Or sometimes you might even reread, give them a short paragraph and then you reread the last sentence so that it's clear. We want clear text product out there, even though we do want kids to be following along as they read. Now, the only place that that's different is, of course, when we're doing this with very young kids, kindergarten, first, even sometimes second grade, we'll do it with read alouds. So the kids don't have the text there. The teacher is just reading aloud to them. And one of the differences we say there is, you're going to have to do more rereading. Ask a query. If kids don't get it, reread because they don't have it there in front of them to inspect. So in terms of getting stronger readers to read, do you allow students to volunteer then who would like to read the next section? Usually, yeah. I mean, that's really up to the teacher, however he or she runs their classroom, whether you just go around and kids take turns or whether you call on kids to, to do the reading. Yeah. Do you see any problems with like not having the weaker readers ever read out loud? Not really, because this isn't the only thing that a teacher would do for reading instruction. I mean, sometimes there are going to be times when she meets with a smaller group and they work more on uh, lower level skill 
word identification and word recognition. And so I, I don't. Okay. And it is, I think it is good, important to have kids following along. So, so all readers are seeing the words as they're spoken. So they do get the sort of text experience and not just hearing it. Okay. How do you make sure students don't read ahead? <laughs> just tell them not to and try to keep them engaged. Is that an issue that occurs? Not it, rarely, because kids like being involved in the discussion, typically. So if they were to read ahead, they would take themselves out of the discussion. Now, sometimes there are. Sometimes kids will read ahead, and the teacher will just say, "Don't you know, we'll get there. Don't read ahead. Okay. I guess in my experience, reading ahead happens a lot, but that's probably because I wasn't necessarily getting the stronger readers to do the reading out loud. So if you get a weaker reader, then the other ones get impatient and they read ahead because they're bored. Yeah. yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Do you mark the segments and pause points in the student's text? No, no. A few times in the book, well, in the sample texts in the book, the students were using quite good discussion language. So they say things like building upon what Hannah said, or I'd like to add to what Modi said earlier. Is that something that you teach them to talk like that? Or do they just naturally? Because that, that was, it was quite impressive. They're usually taught. Now, again, that's something that teachers can choose to do. And some teachers do. Some teachers think that's very, that's important. They want that to be part of their classroom discourse. Often teachers will just kind of model that by saying, oh, so you're agreeing with what Ollie said. And then kids will usually pick up on that and start to say, well, adding to what Ollie said, and they'll realize that that's a good thing and that they are making connections, so they make it clear. But we pretty much leave that up to the teacher, to how she wants to handle that. Okay. And how do you elicit student contribution? So is it just at the pause point and you ask a question, are you then waiting for hands up? Do you like cold call students? Do you just let kids call out? How do you run that? Yeah, usually we say have kids raise their hand so it's not a it's not a free-for-all, at least at first. So often what I've seen happen is kids raise their hand, teacher calls on them, then there's a follow-up, three kids raise their hand, and then they just start calling out. And we say when it just seems to be like that natural kids are getting into a discussion, that's fine. Let it go. You keep enforcing the rule. But when it gets too much, you can't hear each other, then just back it up and say, wait a minute, so many people have things to say, we've got to start raising our hands again. And in that case, would you ever cold call a student? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So when do you cold call them and when do you not cold call them? Well, I think I would not hesitate to cold call a student because I wouldn't do it the first lesson when we did this, probably, and I wouldn't do it in a place that was difficult then call on a student who I know might struggle. But the thing you're trying to set up as the teacher is we're all talking about what we're getting out of this text. And you may not be getting the same thing out, or you may be really puzzled. That's fine. I'm just asking, what do you think the author's doing? What are you seeing here? So it's almost like there is no wrong answer, except I don't know. (laughs) I don't know is always the wrong answer because you can go into that text and come up with something, you know. But yeah, I and some teachers will say, "Oh, I don't want to call on kids who don't have their hand raised." And my answer is, "Why not? They're there in class. They're supposed to be following along this text, working to understand it. They should have something going on up there. So get to it. Find out what it is." And how do you stop students from 
from guessing, because this is something that I've come across quite a bit. If you ask a student question, they don't have an answer. They'll just kind of say something because they're like, they know that I don't know is the wrong answer. <laughs> and so they just say something. How do you get around that? By saying, what did the author say to make you think that? And then when they learn that, if they just give some pop-off answer, they're going to actually work harder because you're going to say, what did the author say to make you think that? That often extinguishes the behavior because they try to guess something. And if they just guess, you'll probably move on to somebody else. But in this case, not moving on saying, well, where did you get that from? You got to back it up. And sometimes I've been in classes with a teacher, a kid would say something like that. And I'd say, well, where did you get that from? I don't know. I just thought maybe, okay, but did the author say anything to give you that idea? Mm -mm. Okay. And then move on. So it learns I'm not supposed to say anything unless somehow the author gave me some clue that that's what was going on. Okay, cool. Now, the final question I had in this kind of little segment is, is about teacher validation. So there's one segment in the text where the teacher said, okay, I think Aaliyah and Mario hit on the big idea. So let's move on. So that's to me seemed like, like a validation. Like the teacher was like, okay, now we've got the main idea. Is that is that something that's okay to do and to say, okay, we've ticked that box? Or is it more like, I think we've got to a good point here? Because I know you're keen for us to avoid that initiation, response evaluation kind of a thing. So how does it all fit together here? Yeah, I think that's a fine thing to do because it's basically saying, yeah, I think now we were all sharing this understanding of what it is the author was giving us in that section. So it's not I mean, I doubt that it was something that a kid just did, like repeated a sentence in the text. That's what the IRE typically is, a brief answer. It's the character's name was the raven, something like some literal fact. It was a real building of the idea. And so, say, okay, I think we got that idea. And teachers often want to put those terms like main idea into the conversation because kids may be tested on that in a standardized test, find the main idea. So they want kids to have those terms in their vocabulary. So yeah, it's not a bad thing to say, okay, I think we got the main idea out of here. Let's move on. Cool. Fantastic. What happens after QTA? So we've read the text, we've discussed it together and things like that. Do students do a writing assignment? Do they do some practice with the vocab that they've learned? How do you usually suggest teachers follow that up if there's time? Any of those things, depending on whether you need kids to do some writing or whether there've been some good words in the text. I mean, that has to be driven by, by the text and by what the teacher wants to get out of the curriculum. I think as we talk about in the, the writing chapter in the book, we think that questioning the author leads beautifully into writing because all these ideas have been laid out there. The kids have already had those ideas going through their head. So they've done a lot of that initial work that you're doing when you have to write about something, write about a text. So I think it leads nicely into writing. It, it makes it more, the idea of writing about a text that you've read, it makes it much more accessible for kids. So I, I think it's a good setup for that. And of course, it's always good to do some rich vocabulary activities from a text that offers some words. And, oh, so actually, so let me tell you about Raven. So another thing that we do with vocabulary is sometimes the words in the text may not be that important to keep. So in the Raven, you know, you wanted to tell kids what a harpoon was. You wanted to tell them what that matuk or whatever was, but you don't care if they practice that word or add it to the vocabulary permanently so much. 
So that can be dropped after the story. Just don't even deal with it again. And then sometimes there are words in a text that you will want to keep keep talking about. I mean, dwelling could be one. It's a good word because then you can also talk about dwell. What does it mean to to dwell? What does it mean to dwell on something? That's a nice, rich word. But you can also bring words in that apply to the story, even though they weren't in the story. So I think there are two sort of main characteristics of the raven, which is curiosity and pride. Mm. So think about those two concepts. And then curious, sometimes it's surprising that kids often don't know the word curious. So that's a really good one to think about. But then you can build so much from that because curious, is it good to be curious? Well, yes, but here he was so curious about something he killed the whale. So then you can go into something like impertinent. I mean, he was bold, but he didn't respect others. Tampering. And then you can talk about the, so his pride, you know, dignity is a really positive way to put it, but arrogance, disdain. I mean, there's so many words you could play with from this story and this character. Mm. And how would you play with those words? How would you introduce them? And and we I'll preface this: you've written another book on this topic called "Bringing Words to Life," <laughs> which which I now really want to read and dig into. And maybe we can have Isabel on the podcast or something to discuss that one. But yeah, briefly, because I know it's worth a whole book, how would you do that? Well, I think I'd start out by talking about the Raven, and say, so how would you describe him? And then. If kids didn't introduce some words about his curiosity or his self-esteem, I'd probably say, well, how about curious? See if they know that word. If not, I'd tell them what it was. Let's say they know it. Curious. Yeah, he was curious. And then I can imagine some kids going, well, yeah, he was curious, but, and I'd try to pick up on that, but what? Well, he was curious, but he was, he was nasty. Oh, so kind of a nat, huh. There's another word for that. Here's a word we could use for that. He was impertinent. Then introduce that word. Then probably somebody would say he was selfish. Okay, tell me about that. And then I'd say, well, there's another way to talk about that. If somebody's really selfish, they might have disdain for other people. Describe what that is. Or you could say they're arrogant and describe that. Hubris, of course, is a great word to introduce here. And then what I might do is fill the board with those words and some explanations for them, and then say, now I want you to write something about the raven. You can use these words if you want. You don't have to. Think about him. Think what you think of him. And actually, the assignment I'd like to give is write an obituary for the raven. Oh, that's great. (laughs) Cool. And then do you share those obituaries? Do you get kids to read them out if they want to, or do you mark them or anything? Yeah, because that's probably a good writing assignment. I'd, I'd probably, as a teacher collect them and ask kids if they wanted to share them or read them. And then a few that I thought were really good, I'd probably ask the kids, is it okay if I share this? Because some kids are shy, even if their work is good. But if you tell them, oh, this really cracked me up, or this gave me a a really different way to look at the Raven, is it okay if I share it with the class? Is a good way to go, I think. That's great. So one of the things we alluded to earlier was the idea of this approach scaffolding students to be independent readers and to actually question the author independently. So that was the next thing I'd like us to turn our attention to. How is it that 
teachers can kind of gradually release responsibility of this QTA process to the point that students can do it on their own? Yeah, well, as you know, we we go into that in detail in the book. But basically, it's after kids get used to doing this process together as a class, then start to turn over parts of the process to them by, and I can't even remember now in the book what order we did it in, but say, read a text together, read it and get read the first segment and then just stop and say, anybody have a query for this? Or have them start the conversation on their own, asking a query or just saying, well, I think I think what's important there, I think what the author said, wanted to say there, something like that. Or then another phase would be, maybe you could read a story with kids, read and say, tell me when you want me to stop because you have something to say or something you want to ask about this story and do it that way. And then start by giving kids homework to take something home and say, as you read this, Mark places where you think if we're doing this together in class, you'd want to stop and talk about it. And what would you ask or what would you want to say about that part of the text? Or is there something goofy that the author's not giving you that you you need to understand there? And then talk about some of those when you come back to class. So turning pieces of it over to them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And at what age would you expect you can kind of start to hand this whole process over to students? Third grade. So we actually had a teacher who was teaching third graders. So that's eight-year-olds. They were doing questioning the author. They did it very well. She She was an excellent teacher, really got into it. And the kids wanted to do it on their own. So the way she did it is she actually took like half the class or a group of kids from the class, gave them a story and said, you plan it and do it for the class. You do the lesson for the class. And they did that. It was amazing. They're little kids. So yeah, it can be very early. It just depends on, but you have to sense that the kids are into this process. They understand what it is they're supposed to be doing with the text. Mm. That's a great story. And there is nothing more satisfying as a teacher than seeing a process that you've put in place become so established that the kids can start to run it for themselves. It's just such a buzz. Yeah, truly. Yeah, yeah. So if that's the case, and I'm sure you've worked with a few schools where this is QTA is done over a number of year levels, like maybe, I don't know, from kinder or from year two or one all the way up to year six or something like that. What does the teacher in the subsequent year do if the previous year's teacher has got the kids to that point? (laughs) It's hard for me to speak to because I didn't see that. The only instance I saw it in was the first school we worked in. We had these two teachers we worked with and they're kids, they were fourth graders and they went on to fifth grade. And one of the teachers remained the same, but they had a new teacher. And actually the kids were teaching the new teacher how to do it. (laughs) They do it better than he could, which is really interesting to see. How did he deal with that? He was great. He was amazing. He absolutely took it on. He trusted his kids. It was really good. He was the one who, I think we might've mentioned it in the book, he would be confused. He would say to the kids, I'm really confused. I don't understand what's going on. And the kids would like jump in there and do it. It was really fun to see. That's so marvelous. But answer your basic question. Yeah, kids do learn to do it. Teachers get better. I've seen teachers do much better the second year than the first year, even though they kind of stumbled along and sort of got it. And then all of a sudden, boom. But I haven't seen that many cases of 
a set of kids moving ahead. And that teacher had done it last year with a class. And, and what happens then? I imagine from the small things I've seen that it just gets easier and easier and kids can have deeper discussions, which is good because as they're moving through to more sophisticated text and literature, then they're really able to take on those interpretive tasks and so forth. And have you seen this used in, we've been talking mainly about primary and middle school, have you seen this used in high school and have you seen it used with kind of technical subjects like science-y texts and things like that? A little bit. We have done it with ninth and 10th graders and we actually started doing it in social studies. So that's not really technical, but we didn't really push it in science because we felt like we didn't know enough science to really be able to do it. But I worked on a project with some people at the University of Colorado, Boulder, who were using it in, in science. So I was doing the question, the author part, and they were filling in with the science part. So it can work in those areas as well. Yeah. But I think is you have to know your science because what we found with like elementary school science books are terrible because they're not very deep or explanatory. So you say, what's the author telling us? And the kids don't have much more to say than repeating what's in the text because the connections aren't made for them. So a teacher has to really know her subject matter, his subject matter, in order to be able to question and guide kids to really see what should be filled in there, the inferences that are left out. Hmm. Okay. That's cool. I'm just trying to work out how I'm going to use it myself. It's such a powerful process. <laughs> and we actually did have some teachers who tried using it in math, especially with word problems. Okay. Have you written any of that stuff up? No. Okay. No. Oh, well. It was just things teachers would tell us at meetings and just informally. So no, we didn't. Some future areas for future research. Yes. Yes. So earlier you alluded to the study that you did with Isabel in 2009 called Rethinking Reading Comprehension Instruction, where you had the three groups. You had the content group, the strategies group, and the basal readers group. And you actually did a comparison across six classrooms. I did want to ask and draw this out a little bit more. What evidence is there? And I expect you'll, you'll refer to this study, but what evidence is there that questioning the author actually works? That's a big piece of evidence because we had two comparison groups, the control group and then the strategies group. So that's probably the most important evidence that it works. In the, the other studies that we've published, we didn't have a comparison group. We just looked at kids before and after. And basically what we looked at was the quality of the discussion. We saw what changed in teacher language and in student language. So that's good evidence. It's not as strong as people would like because it's just before and after, but we can cite a lot of evidence to say that the before was pretty typical of what kids do and say, and the after looked quite different. For example, kids talked a lot more. Kids said things that were more meaningful rather than just repeating the text. The teacher's questions were more about meaning of the text and her responses to students were more she just didn't either say yes, no, or repeat what kid's response was, which is typical in the beginning, but she really extended the response or revoiced it so that it was more coherent, things like that. Okay. What's the reaction been like to that 2009 study? And just for listeners, a bit of a synopsis of it, it was a study over two different years 
there were six different classes. The classes were first ordered by ability from prior testing, and then they were split into three groups. One was using the basal approach, which was the standard approach in the United States at the time, and I imagine still probably is. One was a strategies group, or maybe actually strategies has taken over in the US now. And then one was the kind of essentially questioning the author approach. And then you ran that over two years, you tested after the first year with that group of teachers, and then you tested after the second year with the same group of teachers, but with new classes in the second year. How have people reacted to that study? Well, it was really interesting. We published it in Reading Research Quarterly, which is a really good journal in the reading field. And a lot of people just had a fit because a lot of the people who are pro-strategies just didn't think it was right. I mean, just rejected it out of hand. And it was interesting that the editor wrote to me and said, I want to have a session at AERA, which is the, the big professional meeting, about strategies versus questioning the author. And I said, fine, if what you want to do is have people write up something about either what was wrong with our study or, or what we should look at instead, or what strategies does that question the author doesn't. But I'm not going to sit up there and have people just stand up and, and yell at me. If they want to prepare something that is really a response to it, and he dropped it. We never did it. So my my view, our view, was that there were a lot of people who were kind of ticked off about it, but they really didn't have any answer because I don't think there's ever been a strategy study that really put strategies up against a different approach. Hmm. Okay. Cool. So I enjoyed reading that study. Some things that I thought were really rigorous about it were that you had an expert panel to help design the strategy lessons. Obviously, you were experts in questioning the author, so you designed those lessons. But then for the strategies lessons that were designed, you actually sent them off to an expert panel who were experts in the strategies. So that was really good. Students were randomized. It was in real classrooms, so, which is often really valuable. And probably the key thing also was that you monitored the fidelity. So did you actually observe every single lesson to make sure it was conducted in line with their lesson plan? We recorded every lesson. Yeah. And then you checked them for fidelity and found that, which is something that's often overlooked in studies. And so you were really rigorous. I guess there were a few reservations I had about it, and I'd love to know your response. One was it said the training was run by the researchers, which were yourselves. And so I thought probably you'd be better at running questioning the author training than you would be at running strategies training, given your skill sets. Another thing was that the randomization was based upon the students and not necessarily the teachers. And what that meant was that of the six teachers, four of them, you said, took the typical initiation response evaluation approach and two of them had a bit more complex and nuanced approaches and the two teachers that had a bit more complex and nuanced approaches one was put into the question in the author group and one was put into the basal group so looking at that i thought well maybe these results could be explained by the teachers and i didn't see in the study a teacher by teacher analysis maybe there was i read it a little while ago but i didn't see a teacher by teacher analysis and perhaps a teacher by teacher analysis would reveal that those two teachers who were already kind of better and stronger just got better results and that was the reason for the difference between the the groups what do you have any thoughts on those those questions well yeah i mean i think those are good questions and there's no way to completely say that's a wrong way to look at it those are definitely limitations but what i would say is that so in fact, some people did say to us, well, the training probably wasn't as good. You did 
a better training than the question the author. So our answer was, okay, so look at those transcripts that we did of the strategies. Look at the instruction we had for strategies. Tell us what was wrong with that. What should we have done instead? And I don't know what they would say. Mm. That's how all the articles say to do strategy. And as far as the teachers being better, yeah, that's always got to be a possibility. But then, I mean, these lessons were very scripted. So what would they have been doing that was better? I mean, certainly the question the author, I think, is the hardest one to do because it relies so much on the teacher having to decide how to follow up. Where with strategies, there's less of that because you're saying to kids, give me the main idea. And if the kids can't do it, well, how do we do a main idea? What do we ask to get the main idea? It's so rule-based that, okay, tell me why this teacher, what she did wrong then if she wasn't as good a teacher. And I think that's the problem. with That's the rub with strategies. It is rule-based. And you are teaching kids these routines. And lots of times people who are pro-strategies want to say, oh, yeah, but then then kids will get into a discussion. And I'm like, okay, hold the phone. If they get into a discussion and that's the good part, why don't we just start with that and skip that at least part? Yeah. It relates back to that analogy I had before of drilling through the text to the meaning or going via some other circuitous route. And I guess, you know, in terms of that evidence side of things, a few anecdotal things came out in the book, which were really nice. One was one teacher was kind of threatening their kids that if you don't settle down, we won't do questioning the author later on. So obviously it's an enjoyable thing for students. And then there was another story you had about students in other classes exclaiming things whilst reading in a science class or something, saying to themselves, what the heck's this guy trying to say here? Like actually getting into that habit of questioning the author. Yeah. That's what we want. Yeah, exactly. To me, if we can get students to that point and we can get them to the point where they're having more robust discussions and obviously gaining more from the text, then that's really wonderful. So where do you hope questioning the author will go from here? You've written this book, the second iteration, 15 years later. What are your hopes for its use? I really hope some teachers will, or schools really, will take it to heart and say, boy, this is a different way to do reading instruction, let's try it and have teachers work and plan together. In fact, one of the schools that we worked at, we deliberately did that. We had teachers, we arranged with the principal so that the teachers had time, they were able to spend part of the professional development time planning lessons together, talking through what had gone wrong in a lesson, observing each other, recording, looking at transcripts of each other's lessons and really working it through. So that issue that you brought up before about a teacher on her own in the classroom, it just doesn't feel like this is going well. So that it's more of a team and a group effort. So starting with the reading the book together and say, and talking to each other, you know, asking some of the kinds of things you're asking me now, well, wait a minute, how does this work? Well, what, if I read this, should I say this? And trying it out with each other, I think is it really what would be good and what would be helpful. All right, we might move into some closing questions if that works for you now, Monty. First one is, what advice would you give to your first year teacher self? Yeah, I think the advice would be really think about what the kids are saying and doing in their writing, their reading, their whatever product I'm getting out of them. Really think about it. Try to understand where they're coming from, what is causing if it seems like it's a problem, they're not getting it, why not? What's standing in the way or what are they doing instead? Really think about that. 
I think I'd also tell myself, calm down. You can't get it all right. And there's something I've started to talk about, which is don't be afraid to open more doors than you can close. It doesn't have to be, I want to talk about this topic and I want the end of it has to be, everybody has to understand it. Not going to happen. You can start in on it. It's like with vocabulary. You may start teaching a word, but realize, I mean, kids still may have some misunderstandings about it, even after a good lesson. That's okay because that knowledge accumulates. Any kind of knowledge accumulates. So it's okay to open more doors and not have closure on some things you were trying to teach, even sometimes not have the comprehension of a story. But maybe you get all the way through the story and you're realizing the kids just don't understand this character, the raven. They, they just think that this is some crazy story. This guy was on drugs, probably, and he made up the story. So fine, leave it, leave it. They're not going to understand everything they read. There doesn't have to be closure. Great. Aside from this book, Questioning the Author, what other resources do you suggest teachers check out? Oh, that's a hard one. Well, one of the things right now I would say to teachers is, given the racial reckoning we're having in the U.S., is to look to look toward, first of all, books about U.S. history that kind of set us straight because we haven't learned it very well, very accurately, and books about diverse families, experiences, cultures that either portray those cultures or just happen to take place in other cultures. And first of all, just for yourself to understand the breadth of what's out there and to begin to to bring that into the classroom. Because I think that kind of thing helps this understanding of kids and where they're coming from. And it doesn't even always have to be that they're, they're from some different culture. There's a line of work in literacy about culturally responsive teaching. Maybe you've, you've read about that. And I think it needs to be student responsive teaching, because even if, if kids come from the same culture, they may be, I'm a white teacher, I'm teaching white kids, but there's just something about one kid's family background that he sees things a little differently, or depending on, he's got an uncle who lives in the house who says all sorts of crazy things, and that's something he's bringing into the classroom. It's being responsive to the kids, or this kid is just so fixated on hockey, he sees everything like a hockey game. And it's understanding what knowledge base the kids are using, whether it's a cultural knowledge base or just experiential knowledge base. But I think a wider awareness of the kind of literature that's out there helps undergird that. Mm. What are you currently excited about? <laughs> oh, well, I guess one of the things I'm excited about is I think there is sort of time in education where there's going to be some movement and some change. I think there are a lot of people who are not completely happy with strategies and see it more as it's really back to teaching reading skills, but they don't know what else to do. So I think there's a really good opening for something like thinking about questioning the author, or even if it's not exactly questioning the author, but thinking about really trying to help kids move through text. So I'm excited about that. I'm excited about I really like staying in touch with my colleagues and exchanging ideas with them. I've had a couple of things lately with colleagues who started a conversation for one reason or another. And, you know, we went back and forth, back and forth on email for days. And it was just really, really fun. And I still feel like I'm learning a lot still. But then again, I, I feel like I still have a lot to offer people to help them think about things in new ways. So 
a lifelong learner. Good to hear. And do you have any final calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go to away, away today and do? I think it's just kind of the things that I've said about try new approaches and don't think it's going to work perfectly right off the bat. Realize that all of this is a learning. Your kids are learning. You're learning. There were some teachers who used to say to us after a couple of lessons of questioning the author or text talk, my kids can't do this. And we would say to them, well, if they came into your classroom and they could answer every question you asked them at the beginning of the year, there's no use of them being there. They're not learning anything. They can already answer those questions. What you're supposed to be doing is growing them to the next level. So yeah, they're going to be lousy at it first. So to, to really realize that and for teachers to reach out. I mean, I've had a lot of emails from teachers asking me questions. How do I do this? Or what if my kid does this? Then, you know, what kind of words should I teach them? And to encourage teachers to reach out to people they see on Twitter or authors that they've, that they've read. Most people, most researchers will be happy to respond to you. Fantastic advice. Margaret McCown, thank you so much for your time today. I have had so much fun in this interview. It's really been wonderful. Questioning the author is really such a powerful approach, it seems to be to me, that's built on the fundamental idea of drilling to the heart of the meaning and making the connections in a way that builds robust understanding. I already mentioned the fact that I think your book is a fantastic example of how books should be written for teachers. It's practical, it's simple, it's really concise. You said earlier, you have a habit of being concise and I just love that. I'd be reading the book and I'd finish a chapter and I'd be like, they said everything and they didn't waffle on about nothing. I did, <laughs> things I didn't need to know. So that was really great. The approach is really structured and clear. You've got the worked examples in there. That's great. Something that really came out in this interview was that tone and that playfulness that you personally bring to the classroom and, and that I think is actually, it seems to me, to be an active ingredient of this questioning the author approach. So I'm so grateful that that was able to really come out today for me to come to a better understanding of it and hopefully also for listeners as well. And I love anything that helps students to become more independent learners. And I see that questioning the author as a fantastic example of that kind of a model. So thanks for all the work you've done. And I'll let you know how I go trying it out in my classroom. <laughs> That's great. I do. I want to hear about it. I want to hear how you do it in math and how you do it in physics. I won't understand it, but <laughs> maybe we can do the, the other way. You can teach me a, a math lesson or a physics lesson <laughs> with questioning the author. <laughs> Good idea. Good idea. This has been really fun and thank you. I'm really thrilled to hear that the, the book's been useful to you and interesting. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Marty. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the ERRR podcast with Margaret McCown. As always, you can find show notes with links to all the other resources that were mentioned at ollielovell.com, inclusive of the links to the John Cat website. And remember that code of ERR30 for 30% off. Please share this episode with friends and colleagues if you got something out of it. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning. This podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.